Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by Sukup Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. Thanks for joining us today. We have a fantastic show and something that I know everyone can relate to. Think about the premier event. Maybe you've got it. Maybe someone in your community has it. The premier event. Let's say it's you. You raise significant funds every year for your nonprofit. It has become the ticket to get every year. It's your super duper fest, okay? It's become a household name in your community and you are so pleased about it. It's always great. Everyone looks forward to it. So now let's fast forward. You're on vacation. You happen to be glancing in the local paper and you notice that a local charity is hosting their first annual, you guessed it, Super Duper Fest. And you think, wait a second, that's our idea. Well, yeah, but now they are going to have an event and raise money using your well-established name. And there's nothing you can do about it. Or is there? How could you have avoided this altogether? What if you did protect your assets? Now what do you do? I'm guessing that some of our discussion today is going to center on things you might not have even thought of. And helping us with all the legalese that we're going to talk about today is our guest, Jeannie Seawall. Jeannie is a partner and board member at Han, Losher & Parks. She focuses her practice on intellectual property, general business, and mergers and acquisitions. Jeannie provides advice in the areas of trademark and copyright registration, among other areas. She's located in Florida. She is one of only 140 attorneys statewide that are board certified in intellectual property law. In addition, she serves as general counsel to for-profit and non-profit entities. She's been named a Florida super lawyer 2007 to 2021, including being named a top 50 women Florida super lawyer in 2012 and 2013. She's also been named the best lawyers in America list 2006 to 2022. She knows her stuff and you're being so glad that she's with us today because she's got some great advice and great info. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us today on Impactability. Thank you for having me, Joe. Before we begin, I did want to point out that the content of this podcast today is not intended as legal advice. It is for informational purposes only. You should consult your own attorney to obtain legal advice that is tailored to your situation. Now, Jeannie, I want to unpack this conversation bit by bit because there's a lot to digest here. First, let's start with my intro. Now, we've been doing the Super Duper Fest for years, and now someone else is using the name. Do I have any recourse? So, Joe, the answer is often is the case in the law is maybe, depending on the facts. So, in the U.S., trademark rights are based on who used the mark first, not who wins the race to register the mark first. So, in many countries, they are first to register countries. If you register it first, you own it regardless of who used it first. But in the U.S., rights are based on the first to use. So, in your scenario that you mentioned, we would need to determine whether you were the first to use the Super Duper Fest mark. If you were the first to use it, you can take steps to stop the other party. You could contact them and ask them to stop using your trademark, or you could seek legal assistance and possibly send what's known as a cease and desist letter asking the other party to stop infringing on your trademark. Okay, so Jeannie, if I didn't get a trademark for our fest, do I still have any recourse or no? 
You do, but let's talk about the types of protection available for a trademark so this will make sense in context. Federal registration rights protect the mark across the country. State registration rights protect the mark in a particular state. And the third kind of rights are common law trademark rights that arise simply by using a mark and they don't require any kind of registration. Common law rights though are limited to the area of use of a mark and again are determined by who used the mark first. Since you didn't register your trademark, you still may have an action against the user under common law if they're using the mark in your area. If I get one now, let's say after this experience, I figure, okay, we better get one now. So will the other party have to stop using the name Super Duper Fest? You can potentially stop the other party without a registration. However, obtaining a registration gives you additional rights. For example, to collect statutory damages for the infringing use. But the trademark registration process takes between 12 to 18 months. And that period has been taking even longer due to an extremely high level of applications in the last several years. So starting the process to obtain a registration will not give you any additional protection for some time. Jeannie, what's the difference between a trademark and a copyright? A very good question. As many people, including many lawyers who don't work in this area of the law, confuse trademarks and copyright all the time. So trademarks protect the use of a mark with goods and services. So a trademark is your brand. These are the names that you see representing goods and services such as McDonald's, Apple, Nike, Google, well-known brands. These words are protected by trademark along with their logos. So the Nike swoosh or the golden arches, those types of logos also are protected by trademark. As a kind of interesting aside, color can be protected like the Tiffany blue, smells like Play-Doh, and sounds like the NBC chimes are protectable by trademark law because they represent a product or service. Now, copyright, on the other hand, protects ideas that are put into a tangible form of expression. It protects those items from copying by someone else. For example, you might see a beautiful landscape and decide you wanted to paint a painting of that landscape. So you do that. You own the copyright in the painting. But keep in mind that copyright does not protect the idea. So the idea that you had to paint the landscape isn't protected and someone else can come along and paint the same landscape as long as they don't copy your painting. Copyright doesn't protect an idea. It only protects against someone copying the manner that you put your idea into a tangible expression. So copyright protects things like text of books, photographs, song lyrics, recordings, computer software, web designs, recipes, and many other ideas that can be put into a tangible form. Okay, Jeannie, wait, wait, wait. I got to stop you right there. You mean to tell me the smell of Play-Doh is protected? <laughs> it is trademarked. It is really interesting. I, I love that because, I mean, we all know what that smell is, right? And that's because it's so distinctive, it can be protected. So no one could <laughs> copy that for another type of product, a similar product. What are some of the things that you consider intellectual property at a nonprofit? And what of those should we be thinking about protecting? So some of the things would be the nonprofit name, names of important events or programs like Super Duper Fest, software that the nonprofit might create, 
any kind of independent contractor contributions, things like you hire a web designer so for your website, so your website's protectable, domain names, photographs. These are just some of the more common ones. Right. And let's be clear, intellectual property is an asset. Absolutely. It's a very important asset of any organization. And in some cases, it's the most important asset. Think of the iconic American Red Cross. What is its most valuable asset? You might think it's their donations, but how would they obtain those donations without using its name? I would argue that the trademark American Red Cross is its most valuable asset. Okay, Jeannie, what if we have a special event that we came up with and someone uses the concept, but not the name? Can a concept be protected? Well, I'm sure you're tired of hearing maybe, but most of the <laughs> trademark analysis is very fact intensive. So here, if you had a concept that's very distinctive and original, meaning not done before, it's possible that you could protect it as what's known as trade dress. This is a part of trademark law that protects the look and feel of a product or service. For example, the Apple store has a very unique look and feel which could be protected as trade dress. And also the iconic Coke bottle is an example of protectable trade dress. So the answer is, yes, you may be able to protect the concept. Man, Jeannie, I gotta tell you, this is better than an episode of Law & Order. This is some really good stuff. We're speaking with Jeannie Seawald today about how your nonprofit should protect your intellectual assets, what they might be at your nonprofit, and how it might help maximize the impact of your events, logos, and more. When we come back, we're going to talk about what you do if by chance someone comes to you and says, um, excuse me, you took our event because it could get ugly. This is Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm Joe Turner. We're going to be right back. Major gifts are the ultimate source of funding for nonprofits. They can help fulfill your mission and achieve your vision. Having a strong major gifts program should be a priority, but where do you begin? The best place to start is with Sukup Strategic Solutions. We create transformational change by working collaboratively to raise funds. Our fundraising consultants will assess your organization's fundraising capacity and develop a plan that serves as a blueprint for your fundraising success. Visit our website today at SukupStrategicSolutions.com and schedule a free consultation today. That's S-O-U-K-U-P, SukupStrategicSolutions.com. When it comes to major gifts, the effort you put in can make all the difference, and Sukup Strategic Solutions can help. Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. We're talking with Jeannie Seawald today about how your nonprofit needs to protect its intellectual property, something you probably haven't given much thought about before our conversation today, but now you're starting to think about it. Following our discussion, another edition of Coach's Corner. Stay tuned for that. Okay, Jeannie, from your many years of experience on trademark law, can you share with us a story about one of your clients that should have protected their assets but didn't? and the resulting damage that it had done? Uh, yes, we have a lot of interesting stories in the intellectual property area, but this is a common scenario. Nonprofit, let's call it Cancer-Free Florida, was started by a well-meaning wealthy individual from Illinois. The individual had read about a program in Illinois called Cancer-Free and thought it would be great to start a program in Florida. And of course, the more people raising money for cancer, the better, right? About a year after starting the organization in Naples, hiring employees, holding fundraisers, and developing great name recognition for itself in Florida, 
Cancer-Free Florida received a cease and desist letter from Cancer-Free in Illinois. Although the Illinois group wanted there to be as much money raised as possible for cancer research, it owns the trademark Cancer-Free, and it did not want to allow others to use its mark. Keep in mind that trademark owners need to police their trademarks, because in some instances, if another party uses your mark and provides inferior products or services, it can tarnish the good name and goodwill that your organization has developed. Now, since Cancer Free had used the mark for many years before Cancer Free Florida and had obtained a federal trademark registration, Cancer Free Florida had to change its name, meaning it had to start all over developing goodwill with the public under a different name. And the goodwill of a nonprofit organization, again, is one of its most important assets. So the moral of that story is that before adopting a trademark, you should consult a trademark attorney who can assist you with trademark search work to determine if anyone is using the trademark that you want to use. And that kind of search work is done across the country to find out if anyone is using the mark. And there are other ways this situation could have worked out. Cancer-Free Florida could have obtained a license from Cancer-Free to use its trademark. However, I've seen that particularly in the context of nonprofits, they often are not in a position to spend the legal fees and the administrative costs necessary to put in place a licensing program, even though that might be something they'd like to do to try to extend the benefit of their program. The flip side of this story is that nonprofits should be very cautious of allowing others to use their trademarks. If you receive a call from someone in another state who's very excited about your concept and they want to start a similar program there and use your name, be wary. Although that person that contacts you may have very good intentions, if you cannot control how your name is used, it could be very damaging to your organization in the long run. If the group in the other state provided unsatisfactory services or worst case, used charitable funds for personal gain, it could have a devastating effect on your organization's reputation. Wow, Jeannie, that is a great story. And, and I think the takeaway there is don't just Google something on your own, you know, looking for this great name or whatever. Have an attorney check to see if anyone's using the great name that you think you've come up with just to be on the safe side. Absolutely. That's the best advice that I can give. Okay, Jeannie, here's a challenge for you. Let's say we've come up with an event and, I don't know, one of the staff's kids who's really good at graphic design, she puts together a logo for us. Do we own the logo or does she? The designer, the kid, owns the copyright to the logo. So copyright is owned by the creator. That's the main thing to keep in mind. And this is true even if the organization paid him or her to create it. And this surprises many organizations. They think that if they pay for a logo or pay to have their website created or pay a photographer to take photos, that they would own all of the rights to those items because they paid for them. But they only own the item they paid for and they can use that item for their internal purposes. But the creator retains the copyright so the organization could never sell that creation and they might be limited in the way they could use it. This catches people by surprise all the time. So the moral is always have a written document in place with any third party who creates anything for your organization. And in that written document, you have the creator assign all of their copyright to you. That will solve the problem. 
But just to be clear about this, if it's someone on the staff, say I give a camera to one of the volunteers and tell them this is going to be a great event, here, take some pictures for us. Those are our pictures, not theirs, because they're working for us, correct? Well, if they are a volunteer, I would argue that you need that written document with them. So without getting too into the weeds on this concept in the law, an employee of an organization, anything they create is deemed to be owned by the organization. But anyone else, you would want to have a written document in place. And I will tell you that I recommend to my clients that even with employees, that they put a written document in place that says anything I create during my employment will be owned by you. And the reason is because you just would like to have that document in place. Let's say they create something that becomes extremely valuable. I've seen situations where on down the road, the employee argues, I really was an employee because X, Y, and Z. And so by having that document, it solves the problem. There's never any dispute over it. Okay, let's go with the worst case scenario. We got caught. Now, honestly, we didn't know that the event was trademarked by someone in a different state, and now they're not very happy with us. What can we do, and how could we have avoided this from happening? I mean, honestly, we didn't know. Well, depending on the facts, um, you may have to stop using the mark. I mean, that may be the worst case scenario. But how to avoid this from happening is first, do your homework. You mentioned that they shouldn't just Google the name, but I often suggest that's your first step. You Google the name, see what you can find, check to see if a domain name's available, which gives you a good indication of somebody is using the mark. Then next step, talk to your trademark attorney and get a more fact-intensive analysis of the situation and potentially do some search work. Bottom line is do your homework before adopting any name. What are the top assets of a nonprofit that they should consider protecting? Each organization is going to be different in regard to its hard or tangible assets, things like cash, inventory, real property. But in regard to intangible assets, such as intellectual property, it's important to protect your trademarks. So names, logos, trade dress, slogans, domain names, and your creations, such as logos, website designs, articles, photographs, web content. We were talking before we started the show today about a specific incident that you're seeing happen with domain names. And I said, hold that thought. I want you to share that with our audience because it's something that I had, I'd never heard of before. And to me, it's shameful. But I want everyone to know about this because this is huge. Sure. So let's start with just the concept that domain names are assets. And in general, the first person to register a domain name owns the domain name. So things like nonprofit.com, realestate.com, very generic words, first person that registers owns them. The exception to that is if it's a trademark that's owned by someone else, you can't take someone else's trademark and use it in a domain name in a way that could affect their business. So with that in mind, recently I had a situation that came up with a client where I was contacted by a private investigator who had done some work for this client and found that there were some bad actors who had taken the nonprofit's name and set up a domain name using it. And they were raising funds on this website using the domain. So this was a private foundation. So let's just call it the Seawald Foundation. 
because they were private, they never were public facing. So they didn't have a website. They didn't solicit funds, but someone had realized that they didn't have a website. So they took their name, the seawaldfoundation.org, registered that domain name and started raising funds under their name. And so it came to light that someone had taken three different foundation names and had the same website set up under each of those domain names with the same board of directors, which actually were photos of realtors pulled off of websites, had nothing to do with them. So there are some you know, bad actors doing things like that out there and people need to really be careful. So to me, the moral of this story is no matter what you're doing with your nonprofit, you should register your domain name as a defensive measure to keep other people from being able to use it in a bad way. So I've suggested to this client that they register their name.org.com.net.us, you know, some of the broader ones as defensive measures. But once this happens to someone, the only thing they can really do other than contacting the police, the FBI, others, and try to instigate some kind of a criminal prosecution from a standpoint of what I can do to help them is there is a process to try to make someone give you a domain name that has your trademark in it, but it's an expensive process. And so the foundations who did nothing wrong are having to spend a lot of money to try to correct this. Unbelievable. Jeannie, I got to thank you for sharing that story with us. That is, that that's blows my mind. Wow. Let me ask you this, Jeannie, what are the steps to take to protect the assets that a nonprofit has? Well, with trademarks, you want to choose strong trademarks and trademarks that are not already in use and you want to register them. We've talked about that a little bit. With copyright, you want to make sure you have good written documents in place when third parties are creating items for you. And also, I would suggest marking your copyrighted items with a copyright symbol. That symbol is a C in a circle, the date, and the name of your organization. And this puts other people on notice that you're claiming rights. Years ago, copyright law required the notice, but it no longer requires it. But I still suggest you do it because it puts people on notice in case you had an infringing situation. Jeannie, this has been a great conversation, but what is the question that I did not ask that you'd like to share with our audience today? Well, we didn't talk about how to choose a strong trademark. I mentioned that you want to always have a strong trademark. So perhaps this could be a topic for another podcast, but let's just suffice it to say today that trademarks are judged on a scale of weak to strong. Weak trademarks are descriptive. So things like Naples fundraiser, it's a very weak trademark because it's descriptive of the service. It's a fundraiser and it's geographically description of the location, Naples. A strong trademark doesn't describe the product or service or location. So I've mentioned a couple of examples of strong marks, Nike, Apple, Google, they don't tell you anything about their product, but we all recognize them as the strong trademarks that they are. But in the nonprofit context, some of the strong marks, in my opinion, are things like American Red Cross, United Way, Girl Scouts, Salvation Army. These are not really descriptive of the services that, that they provide. So these would be considered strong trademarks. And impactability. Impactability. There you go. That is a very good trademark. Got to tell you, Jeannie, there's so many things that I hadn't considered to be assets that need protecting. You've really given us lots of food for thought today. Thank you so much for your expertise and for joining us on Impactability. 
It was my pleasure, Joe. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to provide this information. Time once again for another edition of Coach's Corner. This is where we take the questions that you send us. And these questions can be anything in the nonprofit world, A to Z, anything that's bugging you, maybe at the office you need another opinion, maybe it's something major, anything in between, that is exactly what Coach's Corner is all about. So send us your questions, impactcoaches at impactability.net. Today, our special guest coach is Cheryl Sukup from Sukup Strategic Solutions. If you were with us on our last program, we had a question that was pretty complex and we actually split it into two. So we've invited Cheryl to come back to finish this one off because it's a really, really intriguing question. The question comes to us from Astoria Aviles, one of the founders at mostnonprofit.com. And Cheryl, she writes, how can nonprofits be more intentional with a workforce development ladder within and beyond their organizations? That is a great question. And Cheryl Sukup is here to answer it. Cheryl, you have only five minutes to do it. And your five minutes begins right now. Thank you so much, Joe. All right. I also want to say thank you again to Astoria. Thanks a lot for sending us this great question. Creating a workforce development ladder. I'm going to break this up into two parts. First, creating the ladder. And then second, preparing people to climb the ladder. So for the first part, as your organization grows, Positions will multiply, and there are usually opportunities to help your employees and volunteers develop new knowledge and skills that are needed to take on more responsibility as you grow and add new positions. So a career ladder might start, for instance, in development, somebody who's working in development, they may start at an entry level as a data entry clerk. That can lead to multiple career paths. It could be they become a database manager, then an event assistant moving on to event manager, and then director of events, director of strategic partnerships, and then eventually running the whole department as the director of development. Alternatively, that same clerk could go from data entry clerk to donor relations associate to a major gifts officer to chief advancement officer. There are other pathways that they could take as well. There's multiple options. It just depends on how big your development department gets. So my recommendation is that you don't define the pathway in only one direction. Give an opportunity for people to grow into positions based on their specific skill sets and the talents that they have that are innate. The other thing is you really should consider in your organization creating more than one track for career advancement. For example, some people are never going to become managers, and if they do, they shouldn't have because they don't have the skill sets for it and they really don't like management work. But they go for the management position anyway because it's the only way to advance their career, to make more money, to get more responsibility, and to get the prestige that comes from working in a position that is at a higher level. Nonprofits can set up multiple tracks to allow people with valuable skills to advance to higher level positions with pay, benefits, and prestige that equal those of managers without that person having to manage a group of people. An example of this might be a director of program development works alongside the director of program administration. One position, director of program administration, that position may manage many people. The director of program development could be a solo worker or maybe be solo and have an assistant. 
they could use their technical skills at a very high level and be on the same level as the director of program and administration, but not be responsible for any management. They have technical skills, knowledge, expertise, but they don't have the management skills. Still, they have as much to offer the organization as the person in the director of program and administration. They just have a different skill set. So that's an example of how you create a ladder, a career ladder that has different options for people with different talents and skills. Now, preparing people to climb the ladder, that's a different story. The key to that is budgeting time and money for professional development activities and making it a priority. Number one, you need to look at transference of skills. We talked about this in the last Coach's Corner. You identify the skills that past experience brings to the employee. How can they apply that knowledge and those skills in the new position? Also, what do they need to unlearn? For example, someone who has previous experience working for a for-profit housing provider might have transferable skills that could be really useful in a nonprofit housing provider. However, think about a for-profit provider of, of rental housing and what their goal is. Their goal, their goal is to keep their housing units full for as little money as possible, making more money for the shareholders or whoever is receiving that income. The nonprofit housing provider is in the business to change lives. Totally different perspectives. So you may have to help that for-profit housing provider who's come over to the nonprofit side unlearn some things that were standard in their previous job. Also, what additional knowledge and skills do they need? You need to identify the learning style of the worker and then seek educational opportunities that cater to that learning style. So maybe if somebody knows a lot about programs, but they need to learn more about fundraising, so much information out there about fundraising, so many opportunities to learn on the job. There are webinars, in-person workshops, half-day seminars, and also you have Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. So there's a lot of opportunity to develop new knowledge and skills through training on the job, as well as all of these other resources. If you are going to really prepare people to climb the ladder, and it's going to be part of your standards within your organization, you need to set expectations by making it part, a part of your employees' job descriptions. Hold them accountable by making this part of their performance review. And you can create an individualized professional development plan with each employee where they get to tell you what their priorities are and you get to tell them what your priorities are and find the places where they intersect. So there's much more that we can talk about this, but I know we're out of time, Joe. And I wanted to thank Astoria again for this great question. Yeah, it was a fantastic question, Cheryl, and I think you handled it really well. I think great answers. And again, we want everyone to send us their questions. Put our impact coaches to the test. Impact coach at impactability.net. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I really encourage all of you to give me the hard ones. Come on, send me some questions. I want to answer them. And so do the other coaches. They're waiting, standing by to hear what you want to know and to answer those questions. If you've got a question for Coaches Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and that way you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Joe Turner. Thanks for listening, and thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.